as I'm sure you know, and many of you have already been in the groups, predominantly newish students, although not everybody was new in our groups today. One description kept coming up over and over again uh, in describing the experience of the last two days. And it basically can be synthesized into one word, which is long. (laughs) A lot of people said the days were very long. It's interesting. First couple days of a retreat, particularly if you're new, they're extremely memorable, predominantly because uh, not of the bliss and joy uh, that you're experiencing out there, uh, but more of uh, the actual difficulties that we all face. And when I say we all face, I mean we all face, not just a few. Something very universal and connecting about the Dharma when we begin to practice together and when we begin to talk and share. We begin to see that, you know, sitting in your own world in silence, one tends to think, I'm the only one that's suffering. You know, I get that a lot, actually. Uh, I'm the only one that can't sleep. I'm in more pain than anybody else. Nobody could possibly be sitting with this kind of restlessness. They look so peaceful, so quiet. And actually, it's not true. Uh, there's a lot of restlessness and a lot of pain and a lot of challenges uh, that we're facing. Even people who've been practicing for a long time, the first couple of days, you know, can be quite an adjustment. Even teaching, you know, for teachers up here, um, who, who obviously we're not engaged in intensive silent practice. Um, but, you know, for me, there's always a little bit of sleepiness. First couple of days, I can feel it sometimes. There's just a, whew, you know, living in the city, just being around that kind of stimulation and activity. Um, Coming here, you know, there can be a kind of a real drop in energy. Sometimes it feels like a bit of a crash. So often what we begin to taste in the first few days of a retreat, and this is practically all we taste maybe, is the first noble truth. You know, beginning to taste suffering. What it looks like up very, very close. You know, and basically we can be practicing in really excellent conditions because these are excellent conditions for practicing, both outside and within the building. Very, very good conditions for practicing. And we can be practicing in these conditions and be completely miserable. We can be just seeing a level of discontent that's going on in the mind over and over and over again, just never really resting, never really being content with what's happening, always feeling like something else should be happening. And for some of us, that's very discouraging to begin to face ourselves that way, that aspect of self-knowing that really puts, you know, brings that, that uh, face of discontent, puts it right up close. We get to take a look at it, taste it, feel it, be with it. So I'm here to remind you that it's not just about the first noble truth. It's really a lot around moving the mind transforming the mind, beginning to move to a realization of the third noble truth. All four truths, whether it's suffering, the cause of suffering, liberation, and the path, they're all essential to understand. There are many different levels of understanding these truths, but certainly it's very, very important to recognize 
uh, that there's a letting go of suffering. And that's what we're engaged in here. Truly, that is what a retreat is about. It's about letting go of suffering. Even though oftentimes in the present moment, it doesn't seem like that, doesn't feel like it, we're really moving in that direction. And one way I describe this process, it's a little like turning an ocean liner in the sea. It doesn't go, oop, and things are great. You know? it's, it really takes time. You know? it's, it's like a steady turning. And even just one degree is very transformative because of the distance we're going. We're going long distances. And so this turning is painful. It's difficult. Because what we're doing is we're, we're learning how to let go of the power of habit, you know, the power of habitual thinking. We're learning to try to respond to the present moment in a fundamentally different way. It really represents a transformation in consciousness. And so that transformation is earned. You know, everybody earns it. You know, it comes through uh, effort. I'm going to say a lot more about wise effort in a little while. One aspect of this transformation that I want to talk about this evening is relaxation. Both relaxation in the body and relaxation in the mind. Basically how this relaxation process, it's, it's not superficial relaxation. A lot of times we have certain ideas that have been put in our minds through kind of the consumer culture about what relax, re- relaxing means. And that's not what I'm talking about here. I'm talking about a very deep and profound relaxation, both within the body and the mind, and that this relaxation facilitates this awakening, this transformation. I'll begin with relaxation of the body. It's actually the, probably the easiest, the two. Sometimes in practice, I know this was true for me for many years in my practice, and it really, this notion tormented me uh, for years and years and years, which was this notion that if I could only rid myself of body tension, I would be happy, that that my practice would deepen, that I would finally kind of experience kind of a, a very deep level of serenity and ease. And so for me, when I practiced, there was always this little hidden agenda underneath it and lots of different little strategies, lots of sophisticated, subtle strategies on how to get rid of, of tension in my body. And quite frankly, none of them worked. Uh, none. In fact, all it did really was create more tension, not only physical tension, but uh, tension in the mind. But there are some things that I've learned over the more recent years different approach to practice that does support relaxation. It has nothing to do with creating an enemy of tension. One thing you've heard in the instructions around the sitting, say we'll focus on the sitting for a minute or two, has been um, taking some time to relax, you know, areas specifically the eyes and the face, you know, relaxing the shoulders, the arms, in the hands. And there's a reason for this. 
I think there's a very good reason for it. It's extremely useful, this process of just simply being aware of the body, noticing tension, but also giving permission for the body to just soften a little bit. So often, if we're just doing breath practice or we're not paying attention maybe to other aspects of the body, we kind of, you know, there's kind of a hypervigilance that develops in practice, and that creates tension. You know, we could be grabbing onto the breath or trying to focus as closely as we can on the breath. Meanwhile, the rest of our body is really tight and tense. And so, we're, we're, you know, we're, we're practicing in some ways with a little bit of an agenda there. And so simply relaxing the face, the shoulders, the hands, what that does, certainly what I've seen over the years, is that practice itself deepens and becomes much more accessible as we do it, just giving ourselves permission to do that, just softening the eyes, for instance, or the face. Really useful practice, not just in the sitting, but also in the walking. Not just on retreat life, but in everyday life. Because so often when we just simply allow the body to relax a little bit, the mind will go along for the ride. It notices that we're being very receptive, that we're just allowing the body to soften and drop down a bit. And the mind will come down and settle and then we begin to move in a much more receptive, present mode. So taking that that time during the sitting to do that, even if it's um, several times during a sitting, you you find that you're spaced out or wandering, a very pleasant thing to do, and it's very, very useful, is just to come back to the body, relax the face, the shoulders, the arms, the hands, feel the cushion, and then just return again to the breathing. Checking in with the body on a regular basis. That physical relaxation really begins to facilitate relaxation in the mind. But again, the trick is always, when we talk about relaxation, so often we see it as freedom from tension. And that's not what I'm talking about. Because if we create an enemy of tension, we try to develop a strategy around getting rid of that, it creates more tension. So it's, it's playing with that, seeing what that means in your own practice. Obviously, the yoga that we're offering, certainly there are many fruits to any mindfulness practice. And, and, the, and certainly one fruit of the yoga practice is this relaxation. It's getting in touch with the body. And again, if we practice, and I'm sure Matthew would agree with me, if we practice yoga with an agenda, which is we're going to get rid of our body tension, we create that enemy once again. And we're doing this practice with a specific agenda. I'm going to get rid of this block. I'm going to get rid of this knot. That just creates more tension in the mind. You know, we begin to move out of the present. We begin to move out of the space of just being with things. And we begin not to relax, actually, quite the opposite. And so yoga, once again, the yoga practice is simply a practice of learning to be more mindful. Obviously, there's a certain facilitation of healing that can take place, but it's not guaranteed. And so if we attach even to that notion, it creates suffering. In the practice, the relaxation I'm talking about in practice is this letting go of suffering. It's really the profoundest level of relaxation that we can experience is this process, this gradual process of turning the ship so that we begin to let go of the things that
that cause us suffering. We begin to let go of the habits that cause suffering. Turning to relaxation of the mind. Relaxation of the mind is really a fruit. It's a fruit that comes through wise effort and wise attention. And one way of describing wise effort in practice is the effort to the effort to practice wise attention. So it all has to do with effort and attention. Now, wise effort is a very tricky, tricky practice. It's very kind of difficult to get a handle on because it's quite a bit different than the kind of effort that we've been trained to do, you know, the kind of effort that is required a lot of times in our jobs, or, uh, in our life in general. And so what we're trying to do is cultivate a different kind of effort in this practice, an effort that doesn't, uh, doesn't, isn't framed by the model of success and failure, for instance, the um, kind of effort that doesn't have anything to do with achievement you know, or accumulation. It's really more to do with a letting go process, a relaxing, a relaxation, a letting go, a release, a release of suffering. And so this wise effort needs to be learned. It needs to be practiced. And it means different things under different conditions. I'm going to go more specifically into that in a minute. The Buddha talked a lot about wise effort because he knew how important it was. And wise effort is, basically it's the middle path. And it's the middle path between, on one extreme, is the striving mind. The mind that's trying really, 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 really hard. No matter what the notion is that's underneath it, it could be that you're really trying hard not to try. Or you're trying really hard to have a particular experience, like concentration. You, know, you, could, you could be trying really hard to be focused and concentrated. And so the striving mind is that mind that's pushing. It's kind of an aggressive quality in the striving, and that's one extreme. Obviously, that's unwise effort. The other extreme, most of us get to know both of them sometimes, is being too lax too loose, being too casual, as Larry said the other day, not making that commitment to pay attention, not making that commitment at all to being present. The Buddha described wise effort as uh, tuning the strings of a lute. The strings are too tight. You know, it hurts to play. It's difficult to play when the strings are tight, too tight, pushing too hard. If the strings are too loose, really can't play music. You know, you don't experience the fruit of the instrument. One problem with striving is that it tends to lead to a burnout. You know, the kind of the pushing energy, trying to make something happen over and over and over again. It tends to lead to burnout, then oftentimes to doubt. A lot of our doubts about ourselves comes from striving to make something happen that isn't in our control. So often our practice, quite frankly, at least the content, what's arising in the present moment, so much of it is not in our control. And if we're busy trying to control it or to make something happen, we're pushing, um, it creates doubt in the mind because 
that's not the nature of the mind. It's not in our, our control. So it often leads to doubt and obviously creates a lot of tension. I'm very familiar with this, this particular extreme. The other is lax, being too lax, being too casual. And the problem with being too casual or too lax is that it leads to doubt. Again, see, they both lead to a lot of doubt eventually. They just get there in a little bit different way. Um, the, tr- the, the problem with lax, why it leads to doubt, is because we never get to taste fruit. If we're just too casual... You know, we just oh, I'll feel like practicing for a few minutes, and then I'm going to check out and fantasize and plan my vacation for the next half an hour because it's a lot more interesting than the breathing. Um, if we do that, that's kind of lax. That's a good example, actually, of being kind of lax. And it's kind of hard, quite frankly, to settle the mind down at all if we don't at least make that commitment um, to being uh, as present as we can be. Uh, and so we want to find that balance in our, in, a, in, in our own practice. And, you know, there's no formula for finding that middle road. Some of us have personalities that push towards the striving end, you know, that, that really, you know, it's kind of macho energy. It's, it's, you know, bring it on kind of energy. I can take anything that comes up energy. And then, the, and then some of us have personality types that give up very quickly. You know, as soon as we face, you know, the sleepiness twice in a row, we're ready to throw our cushion through the window and pack our bags and get out of here. Um, you know, that, you know, our personalities can go in that direction of being too lax, not, not willing to try, uh, not willing to, to put the time in. Another way of describing wise effort, it's one that I like anyways, is gentle perseverance. Learning how to be gentle. Learning how to be gentle. That's why it's different. You can see this is kind of different than what we're used to. It's not aggressive effort. It's being gentle and soft. Um, But at the same time, cultivating perseverance. Cultivating perseverance. The kind of qualities that are in this practice, the kind of qualities that we're developing that support gentleness, first of all, is mindfulness. Remember that mindfulness is this innate capacity that you have within you. And, of course, what we're doing the last couple of days is, in a very intensive way, nurturing that quality of non-judgmental attention. In other words, continuing to bring the mind into the present uh, without judging what's happening. I mean, that's the practice. That's the quality. But it's not necessarily that's what our experience is, but that's what we're developing, is that ability to just open to the present. And in this opening, we're really, uh, this is the seeds of of wisdom, of, of inner clarity. And so this gentle quality, mindfulness is very gentle. It has no agenda. You know, it has no ambition. It's just simply a willingness. It's a willingness, and a, an inner quality that allows us to open to our experience with fresh attention. Without the harsh judgments. Mindfulness doesn't reinforce that judging mind. It allows that judging mind to begin to unwind. Because now we're trying to meet the present moment, even if it's painful and difficult. We're trying to meet it without the habitual reactions. Instead, we're trying to, in a sense, almost embrace it or open to the experience. Gentle quality of practice, very important because it facilitates this healing that's essential for all of us. The perseverance piece. You know, one thing we keep mentioning over and over again, turning that ship, it requires patience. Absolutely, 100%. It requires patience, but oftentimes we don't have patience. And so fortunately for us, 
we can cultivate patience, and that's exactly what we're trying to do here. You know, sometimes people describe, you know, a lot of old yogis will come and just kind of write off the first two days. I'll do it. I know what it's going to be like. I'm going to feel sleepy, not so focused, but I know by the third day I'm going to start settling down. And so sometimes there can be a real lack of fresh attention, you know, kind of the the absence of beginner's mind. Um, I often see, quite frankly, the first couple days as the most fruitful in a way. Um, Not so much that we're experiencing a lot of calm or the mind is very focused and, and settled, but more what we're facing is kind of that's what we're developing in a very acute way, I think, is what Larry talked about, uh, talked about last night, the self-knowing quality. In other words, what most people are facing at some point or another in the day, and for, for many of us this is occurring very frequently in our practice, what we're facing are difficult conditions, both in the body and the mind. And what we're trying to do is relate to them in a fundamentally new way. That's, that's what the direction wise effort goes in. Wise effort cannot create ideal conditions or conditions that are pain-free or not difficult. You know, that's the nature of the body and the mind when we sit down, is we discover pain in the body and we discover all sorts of painful emotions and mental states and moods and reactions. Um, and, but what we're trying to do, where the transformation occurs, is that we're trying to relate to them in a very different way. We're trying to relate to them with awareness so that we no longer are subject to them. And the fact is, one can learn through practice, and this is, this is what is essential in practice, is learning how to be in difficult conditions without suffering. Without suffering. That's the freedom. If our freedom depends on not having difficult conditions in our life, it's not really freedom. It's very conditional. It's not the nature of human existence. And so the nature of human existence is both pleasure and pain. That's part of life. And so freedom is, is learning how to relate to those situations you know, so that we actually begin to see them as opportunities. And it, it sounds a little like a cliche because I know it's been said a lot. But it's, it's possible to actually begin to experience it that way. That when you face something difficult, you know it's provoking something in you, some kind of suffering that's possible to let go of. And it doesn't mean that you're always passive in the face of conditions, and I'm going to get to that in a minute. But it's that you learn to respond. You see that these conditions are bringing up something in you, some place you're clinging to, some place that you're reacting to, and it needs to be looked at. It needs to be understood. And in, in the understanding, there's a letting go of suffering. There's freedom. The freedom isn't in, inherent in the condition. It's more in how we're relating to the condition. And I feel like the two first couple days, they are the toughest, generally speaking. You know? And the practice is that cultivating that patience, learning how to be soft and allowing, and also cultivating compassion. These are the qualities, like things like compassion and patience, that are going to serve you very, very well out there if you can cultivate them in the here and now. And I mean the here and now, in this retreat, in, this, in each and every sitting and walking you do. Concentration is a very fleeting quality sometimes. 
it, it arises on retreat. You know, it's, it takes a lot of work oftentimes to develop a bit of concentration. And then sometimes you go home and it's, it's out the window. You know? And if you see the retreat as, hey, you know, it's all about concentration, it isn't. That's one quality, extremely valuable, but it's about much more than that, much more than that. It's about developing qualities that, are gonna, uh, that you can really apply in situations that you face in your daily life. And right now, the kind of conditions we're facing, obviously there are some challenging external conditions, like we've talked about adjusting and all of that, but predominantly a lot of the conditions that we're struggling with are internal conditions. And so seeing if we can train ourselves to, first of all, hold those difficulties. And I'm going to go into specifics around what those difficulties are and a little bit about wise effort around that. But if we can begin to hold the difficulties, the painfulness, the reactions, the contractions, the tightness that happens in the mind, if we can begin to hold ourselves just the way we are in this moment, just the way we are, we don't have to improve. We don't have to change. We don't have to fix ourselves. If we can just simply hold ourselves with some degree of compassion, recognizing that we are suffering, it's freeing to recognize that. It can be. If we don't get caught in the suffering, instead see the fact that we can begin to let it go if we learn how to take all these conditions that we face from one moment to the next and apply some awareness to them. See if we can begin to shift our relationship to those things. This doesn't happen overnight, simply put. This is a training, and I I think it's a lifetime training, really, uh, because sometimes it's funny about life. Um, As much as you practice, there's always something that comes along, it seems to me, uh, that challenges you. You It's amazing. You You can think things are just going great, and your practice is flying, and all of a sudden something happens. Somebody close to you dies or somebody gets ill or you get sick, all of a sudden, boom, you know, conditions change. How to respond to those conditions? How to develop a certain kind of confidence and trust in oneself so that you can meet life head on? That's what we're doing. It's really good work. Let me go into a few specifics. Um, I think most of these, I'm sure, will be I'm quite familiar. Certainly talking about applying wise effort in working with pain. (sighs) Finding the balance. That's the key. That's the key in terms of working with pain. Sometimes pain drives us to strive. Sometimes we approach our work with pain with a striving mentality, like bring it on kind of mentality. I can take it. In fact, the more I can take, the better. Uh, and it's actually easy to adopt that, adopt that attitude. Um, I go back to myself, of course. Whenever I think about unwise attention, all I have to do is kind of look at my life in practice, uh, especially, I'd say, the first, well, first number of years, anyway. Um, before IMS was here, there was um, you know, practice. The, the, Joseph and Jack and Folks like that began to travel and offer retreats, and I met them in 1974. And I sat a three-month course um, about a year or two before IMS um, began. We went up in Bucksport, and, and there was at that point in time, practice was really new. You know, there really now there's a culture and a context for what we're doing here, and many of you arrive, quite frankly, quite 
you know, even if you haven't practiced, quite sophisticated, you know, in the language and the understanding uh, of what, where practice is going, and, and, and you know, there's a, there's a sense of what you're doing. Uh, for us, there really wasn't much of a sense of what we were doing. Uh, we were all pretty out, out there, basically, uh, pretty wild in our practice, and I, I led the crowd. Um, and I'll give you a good example in working with pain in terms of the striving energy, kind of taking it to the, I won't say the utmost extreme because I'm sure there have been others that have been worse, but it was pretty extreme. Um, I remember I, I, there weren't really meditation benches back then that you could sort of go and buy. And so I, I built my own meditation bench. It was a more primitive model than this one. Um, so I bought this bench, and I was traveling around with it, and I brought it to Bucksport. And I used it. I was sitting in a bench. And, and after a while, you know, it's a three-month retreat. And many of you, at least several of you, have done these three-month retreats. And now there's been like 30 of them or something. So they're kind of, you know, people tend to, I don't know what the word is, take them for granted or it doesn't seem like much for a lot of people. Uh, but we kind of dove into this three-month retreat without any expectations at all or really knowing what we were getting into. And I had no idea what I was really getting into. I had a 10-day retreat and... That's about it. Anyway, a, a lot of pain started arising uh, for me in my practice, and it came out of uh, sitting on the bench. The bench, of course, is made of wood. My body is not wooden. Uh, so contact with the body with the wood, um, the wood is going to win, actually. It's, it's much harder. Um, and when I was sitting, um, I started, the, my tailbone started really hurting a lot. You know, and it started becoming very, very painful. Um, and that pain wasn't so impermanent. It actually started getting worse and worse and worse by the day. Now, one might ask, why didn't I use a cushion? Uh, I was smart enough to at least thought of using a cushion, you know, put a cushion on a bench, and it'll be softer and more comfortable. Uh, but that option wasn't available to me uh, because of my stubbornness. I decided that sitting on a wooden bench without a cushion was better. Uh, and so I spent days sitting on this bench, and each day it became progressively more and more painful. And what I was saying into my mind was, this is a good thing. It's keeping me awake. Uh, I'm working with this pain, and, you know, uh, it's, it's a good thing. I feel very awake, very alive, uh, all of that. And uh, after like a couple weeks, what would happen is that as I was sitting, the pain would start a little bit in the beginning of the day, and then as the day wore on, of course, it would get worse and worse. And by the end of the day, I was in like excruciating pain. And then it, it devolved from there and came to a point when from the moment my butt touched the bench in the morning, I was in excruciating pain. And that just continued throughout the entire day. And I went on for days and days and days and days like this, telling myself all sorts of stories about why this was a good thing. And the moral of the story is that was a mistake. Uh, that's unwise uh, effort. That's carrying things way to the extreme. And so finally, even I had the bright notion of uh, why not give myself a break and put a cushion on the bench. And I, I, to this day, and this is almost 30 years ago, I can remember the moment that I sat down on that cushion. It was like I was sitting on a cloud. You know, I, I felt like I was sitting on a cloud, and that sitting, I honestly thought I was going to get enlightened. You know? 
I was, I was so relieved and so relaxed to be out of excruciating pain uh, that I really, I thought I was like right on the cusp. I wasn't quite delusional enough to think it actually happened, but I did think I was close. Um, so needless to say, um, that's, that's the striving end of working with pain, you know, pushing to the point where you think it's a real virtue. Uh, the, the, the other end is, is an end that some of you may be familiar with, which is also the lax end, which is, um, you know, at, at the slightest hint of pain, we move, you know, be, partly because we're afraid of it. And so we move, we move out of the physical pain. And that's, that's being a little too casual. You know, we want to find that middle path. Now, obviously, you know, like I said, wise effort is different for everybody. Some people have lots of problems with their bodies, including people up here. You know? And so wise effort means oftentimes really emphasizing the gentle quality of practice, you know, alternating you know, sitting in chairs, really taking care of your body so that you're not sitting in a lot of unnecessary pain. That sometimes that's really the direction we need to go in practice. For others, you know, there's so much aversion in the mind at the slightest hint of pain. You know, the body does go through an adjustment period, and there is some tension in the body. Um, and so learning to be more allowing of that energy, not moving right away, but rather cultivating a mind that is a little bit more spacious, that allows, that, create, that discovers some, pain, some space around the pain, you know, not being so judgmental, being aware of the resistance of the aversion, but also being willing to persevere, to stay with it a little bit, to watch its nature, pay, you know, pay a little bit more careful attention to the sensations themselves, be aware if there's any reactivity towards the pain. You know, so often there's a lot of fear towards pain. Getting to know, that self-knowing again. See, a little bit of discomfort in the body can really reveal a lot about the way we relate to pain, sometimes both physically and emotionally. So getting to know ourselves that way and finding out what works for us. Trying to be comfortable, but kind of a willingness sometimes to work with that discomfort. So that's the difficulties in the body, kind of the pain, the knots, the tension. Learning to be both gentle yet persevering in terms of working with that. The gentleness is, is crucial. You know, the non-judging mind, the non-condemning, you know, not identifying with the pain or condemning oneself for the pain. It's extremely important to hold it in a light way. Then there are the emotional energies, the difficult energies that come up, the different states of mind that uh, arise in, in our minds uh, in this training. And certainly uh, one uh, will talk talk briefly here about, just kind of skim over them, the five hindrances, the, the sort of five difficult energies that one uh, confronts. And if you're new, these energies could be quite new to you. If you're new to this practice, uh, sometimes they hit us, and really it's quite surprising sometimes the intensity of these hindrances when they do arise. And so it's very important. It's very normal for the hindrances to arise in a very intense way early in the retreat, but it's very important then to know how to respond with wisdom, to these energies when they come up. These are natural energies. The mind's conditioned in many ways to, to give birth to these energies. 
but we can learn how to respond with wisdom, you know, with wise efforts, so that we don't suffer so much. You know, we can be, actually use these difficult energies as a way of letting go of suffering. The wanting mind, you know, that's number one. That's the first one of the five. The wanting mind, and it, this gets expressed through fantasy a lot. You know, I mean, fantasy can be a lot more interesting uh, when you're sitting on the cushion than just, like Larry said, just breathe in, just breathe out. That can be quite an intensely boring thing to do sometimes. Uh, and our fantasies about somebody or something we're going to do when we leave or all of that is very compelling. And, of course, the mind naturally at times will go in that direction of fantasizing or wanting, wanting something else. Uh, it actually arises quite regularly. How to work with that wanting mind? First of all, you don't want to judge it. You know, a lot of times the notion of Buddhism, Buddha Dharma, is that you know, wanting is bad. You're not supposed to have desires. You're not supposed to be wanting. But, of course, that, just, that, that judgment just creates more tension in the mind. You know, uh, it has a tendency to kind of suppress it, or we walk around feeling guilty because of the wanting coming up. And that's not particularly helpful. So we don't want to judge it. But what we also don't want to do is indulge it. And this is key. Remember the, the perseverance piece, not being too lax. It's very tempting to indulge in fantasies. When fantasies arise, no problem. The practice is to be mindful of them, return to the breathing. You know, simple. But often there's a tendency to indulge. You'll get lost in, in the world of fantasy. And so wisdom, oftentimes in working with fantasy, and this is probably one of the most powerful ways of working with fantasies, is exercising restraint. Exercising restraint. And restraint, sometimes in this culture, has a tone of repression. Like restraint is like a bad thing. But in restraint, there's rest. Restraint, rest. And what we're doing in restraint is giving ourselves a rest. Deciding, and the way we do that, deciding that we're not going to consciously indulge in fantasy. There'll be times when we get swept away, no doubt about it but we're not going to consciously feed it. We're not going to feed that energy because we don't want to be here. And see, that's, the, that's, the, that's why fantasy subjects us to suffering, because so often it represents a movement away from the here and now, and it's in the present moment that we get liberated. It's how we relate to the present moment. If we relate to it with clarity, we free ourselves. So, Fantasy is kind of like a cheap thrill in a way. It, does, it only gives us that momentary pleasure, uh, and then it's fleeting, it's gone. And we often left with empty, an empty feeling. So making that commitment is, real, is wise effort. You know, being gentle, not judging, but, but deciding you're not going to go that route. And really, a lot of times it just says, okay, I'm not going there. You know, not in a harsh way, but I'm just deciding I'm not going there, I'm coming back coming back into the body. My job is very simple. I'm just going to stay in my body. You know, just making that conscious choice. Not an easy choice sometimes, but that's, that's, that's wise effort. Second, energy is aversion, and that's kind of the contraction, contractive energy. It's when we face something unpleasant. It's almost automatic for most of us. When we face something unpleasant, the mind tightens. You know, your physical pain, the mind tightens. Emotional pain, the mind tightens. Uh, uh, different kinds of energy or mental states, moods come up, and the mind is aversive to it. It contracts. It doesn't like it. It 
pushes it away. It contracts. And so learning how to work with aversion is essential in practice. In learning how to work with it with wisdom, again, if you have a lot of impatience, annoyance, irritation, you know, judging mind, the mind that's condemning, of course, those are all expressions of aversion. It's very common. I can't tell you how common it is for those states of mind, for those reactions to arise in practice. It arises for everybody at one point or another in practice. So we don't want to respond to aversion, to our fears, to our anxieties, to our worries, to our anger, irritation, or impatience. We don't want to respond to those states of mind with more aversion, with more judgments, with more condemning. You know, if you, if you feel impatient when you're standing in line, be mindful of the impatience. Simply put, be mindful of the impatience. Mindfulness doesn't reinforce it. It simply allows you to be with the experience exactly as it is, and you're not feeding it. If you're standing there and you, and you start telling yourself, well, you know, this line should be moving a lot faster. Uh, they should have designed it differently so that there could be six lines instead of four. You're getting caught. You're getting caught in aversion. The conditions are what they are. How we relate to those conditions is going to make all the difference in the world. If we can relate with awareness to the conditions, if we can wait to relate to our aversion with mindfulness instead of getting sucked into it, we begin to let go. We begin to relax into the present. We don't have to do anything special. We begin to let go of that suffering and we begin to come back again to the present. We see that it's okay if the line is moving a little bit slowly. Where are we going next? Would be a good question to ask. When you're feeling impatient, ask where are you going? You know, like you're going to the table to eat and then you're going to go wash your dishes and then you're going to brush your teeth and then you're going to kind of look around for something interesting to do maybe walk or a yogi job. You know, it, nothing spectacular is going to happen necessarily. Um, so relax. You know, when you find that you're feeling annoyed or irritated, don't judge yourself, but don't feed it either. And in that, there's just so much freedom, so much freedom. It's really empowering uh, to let go of that, uh, not to feed the aversion that comes up. Or, you know, it's just very freeing. And cool. There's a cooling experience, a calming experience that comes up when we can begin to bring awareness to aversion rather than judging it. Sleepiness, we've said a lot about. I'm not going to really go into that much. Obviously, the key with sleepiness is the non-judging mind. You want to try to bring awareness, acknowledging it. You're not the only one that's feeling sleepy. Uh, you probably know that by now. Uh, we wouldn't be talking about it as much if it wasn't such a common experience. Um, but again, so often what happens in practice, remember I talked about relaxation, is letting go of suffering. A tremendous source of our suffering is the agenda and expectations that we bring to practice. We, co- we come to a retreat and we have certain expectations. And certainly your expectation is not going to be this, okay? that it's going to be tough and hard and painful and sleepy and restless. Okay? Our expectation is that if we put in our time in, we're going to be experiencing peace. We're going to experience a lot of the good stuff that we read. The problem with that, and that's possible to experience all that, but the problem is, is if we come in with an expectation of the way things are going to go, we, we're, it's a setup for suffering. 
because we're not always in control. And you can see that with sleepiness. A good example of the nature of the mind is that you don't want to be sleepy when you're sitting on a cushion, but you are. Then when you go to bed, you want to be sleepy, but you're not. <laughs> Classic example, I think. Classic example of the nature of things. You know, it's amazing, actually. But that, that's a very common experience. And people will be dropping dead on the cushion. They can't keep their heads, like, you know, just gone. And they go to sleep. They, they go to bed, they lie down, and off they go. You know, the energy comes. Feel like, the last thing you can do is get up and sit again. Uh, so you just put pressure on yourself to get to sleep, and that creates more tension. And we forget that we could actually practice in that moment by relaxing the body, being mindful of the breathing, and lo and behold, sleep would probably come. It's a good antidote, actually, to um, non-sleepy mind. So sleepiness, learning to be non-judgmental but persevering. Some people think sleepy sitting is a waste of time. It isn't. I can't emphasize that enough. It's worth it to sit through sleepiness. You've got the relaxation piece in sleepiness. Body's very relaxed, mind's very relaxed, but now you need a little attention. Got to get the other half together. Uh, And that comes about through sitting. Finally, um, well, not quite finally, but almost finally, uh, restlessness, agitation, and boredom, uh, you know, give me a break. It it comes up uh, on a a regular basis. Uh, It's not always interesting. It's not always the 4th of July. It, it, the mind is very much like a monkey, you know, swinging from one branch to the next branch, the next branch, the next branch, the endless branches it swings to. And that's, of course, our thoughts, spinning, spinning, and spinning, uh, looking for something to hold on to that's going to bring some contentment. Okay, so working with that restless mind. mind. In this particular case, there's a couple of different things that help a lot. One is um, taking a vow to sit. Uh, even for a minute or two, without moving. Sounds easy. Actually, not that easy. Feeling restless, just sit really still, even for one minute, where you're not going to fidget, your awareness is in the body, resting in the body, and you just decide you're just going to keep your body very relaxed and still. Just try that sometime. So often, mind settles right down. Restlessness passes. Just by keeping the body very still. Very useful. So it takes not judging the restlessness, being persevering, of course, means working with it, uh, not giving up, not getting caught in what, what is the fifth hindrance, which is doubt. I want to finish just talking a little bit about that because I think of all the hindrances that often come up uh, early in practice or if you're a new practitioner, uh, even old yogis, people who have been practicing for a while, work a lot with doubt because once again, we have certain expectations, and sometimes old yogis have very high expectations of themselves, and that really plants the conditions for doubt to arise because according to us and the way we evaluate our practice, um, it should be somewhere where it's not. So often that's the attitude is something else should be happening. It should be deeper. It should be more focused. It should be more concentrated. And so that gives the seeds for doubt. You, know, you sit here, and we're working with, say, all five of the hindrances, sometimes at the same time. You can be fantasizing. You can have aversion to everything that's going on around you. You can feel really sleepy, restless and bored, and doubting the heck out of practice. All at the same time. 
you know, just like tremendous, just one hindrance after the next. And so how to work with that doubt when it comes up? How to work with it? First of all, doubt arises when conditions are difficult. Usually doubt doesn't arise when things are going your way. It's really when things aren't going that well. In, in this particular case, we're talking about things like sleepiness, physical pain, restlessness, the wandering mind, those kinds of things. Uh, so when those things come up, it's natural to then begin to doubt. You know, oftentimes people doubt themselves. Like so often, you run into that in the group interviews. So many people have doubt about their own ability to do this practice. All I can say is, I've been doing it for a long time. I know it's possible. You know, I, But if we react to difficulties by getting sucked into the doubt, it really undermines our commitment. You know, it undermines, and some, and some folks will describe self-doubt as really the hardest of all the difficult energies, precisely because, one, it arises when we're vulnerable, when things aren't going well, and then doubt arises, you know, feeling like that we're doing something wrong, we're a failure. You know, so often we think, we're just not doing it right. We can't do this practice. And that really is not true. It's simply the voice of self-doubt arising. It's our conditioning arising in the face of something difficult. So again, the key to self-doubt, when you notice that you're saying to yourself, I can't do this, it's too hard. You know, one is you need to be looking at whether you're pushing too hard, because remember, that gives doubt. Another way you have to look is, are you being too lax? Okay. Without judging that, just noticing that maybe, maybe you're, not, you know, you're not trying to nurture that continuity of attention. And so that's giving seeds to doubt. But the other thing you really want to do is, first of all, acknowledge that doubt is present. Don't feel like you have to run from it. Don't feel like you have to convince yourself that this is the best thing in the world, this practice. Just simply acknowledging and being mindful that doubt is arising. And it's a state of mind. It's an energy that's coming up. It's simply a state of mind. It's not the absolute truth. It's not somebody sitting there uh, commenting and describing everything about your practice you know, in, in truthful terms. It's simply the vo- voice of doubt arising. And doubt doesn't just arise, as we know, in formal practice. It arises when we face difficult conditions out there, when we're facing something that we're afraid of, or something that's stretching us, or something that's difficult. Doubt arises. If we get hooked by that, it's very undermining, it's very disempowering. And so learning how to work with self-doubt when it comes up, when things aren't going our way, extremely important to let it in consciousness when it arises, not pushing it away, but not getting caught by that voice. It it leads to tremendous confidence, actually. Once you begin to work with self-doubt and you begin to see that it's a hindrance, then it doesn't rule you. It doesn't condition the kind of choices. And then it doesn't slide into resignation. Because that's the danger of doubt. So often, if we get caught by doubt, it leads to despair and resignation and a feeling like we just can't do it and we're never going to be able to do it. And that's doubt when it gets really solid. Very difficult to begin to turn that around. But even if you notice that energy of resignation, be mindful of it. That begins to soften around the resignation. We begin to let go of that clinging to that feeling of being resigned. And some energy starts flowing into the body and into the mind when we bring mindfulness to resignation or despair or discouragement or doubt. And we gain confidence. 
when we move through that space and come someplace else. So even though it might be hard for some of you, I want to encourage you to really uh, you know, take a few moments when you go to bed tonight. Just kind of reflect on kind of why you're here. Remember, you know, we're, we're, we're moving towards liberation. You know, everybody in this room you know, has worked very hard the last couple of days. I know. It's hard work. Um, but keep in mind the direction the practice goes. Thousands and tens of thousands of people have followed this path, even in the last... 30 years since it's come here. You know, and people experience the fruit. But it does require that patience and commitment and not getting caught by any of these challenging energies, rather seeing these energies as fertile ground for awareness, fertile ground for self-knowing, fertile ground for cultivating compassion, compassion for our own suffering and compassion for others. A lot of these difficulties are what connect us to everybody else. Okay. So can we just sit for a minute? So thank you. You've all been very patient, which is good. Um, Keep the continuity of attention going as you stretch up, stand in the body, you move out of the hall, maybe get a drink of water, you know, go to the bathroom. Begin to keep stay, keep the body very relaxed and be very attentive to whatever you're doing. 